Uh, we've been in this series where we've been exploring boldness, and the way we've been looking at boldness has been through the eyes of the early church as uh, recorded for us in the book of Acts. And so before we start talking about boldness again, uh, let's just kind of back up for a second and look at the lens through which we've been looking, which is the, the church, the early church when it was born. Uh, we've kind of talked about this a few weeks ago, but let's go at it like this. People will ask, what is the church exactly? Uh, because, well, for, the, for a majority of people probably in our culture, their experience of church almost in its entirety is kind of this, where people gather together and listen super attentively to a message and then sing a few songs and then they're invited to pray and then when it's done, they go home back to their normal routines and daily lives. But at some point or another, most people who kind of attend places of worship They'll start asking the question, is this the whole of the experience that Jesus intended for me to have? I mean, is, is, this, is this it? What exactly is the church? Now, the church is not a building where people gather together. It's not a program or a philosophy or a list of rules. It's not a country club. It's not a political party. And it's not just a bunch of nice people looking really nice. The church is the followers of Jesus Christ everywhere. In the New Testament, there's a word in the Greek. It's ekklesia. It comes from two words, ek meaning out and klesia from kaleo meaning to call. We are the called out ones of God. That is, that's the church. We're called out by someone to do something, a particular purpose. And in the book of Acts, here's what we see. We see people who have heard the call and they've received the call and then they're living out this call in a very practical way in their lives where it's visible to everyone around them. And the book of Acts begins like this. Jesus calls out his disciples, his followers, to proclaim the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ. And so they go out into all the world everywhere, and they're preaching the good news. And people, outcasts, and, and the poor, and the disenfranchised, and everyone, they're receiving the good news as essentially good because when Jesus talked about the good news, it was always in connection with, it was always in conjunction with something he called the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, God's purposes are very plain and apparent. In the kingdom of God, there's righteousness and justice. In the kingdom of God, there is hope for the poor and the disenfranchised. And in the kingdom of God, when you're living under the kingship of God, in other words, when you're in his kingdom, things like mercy... And forgiveness take precedence over bitterness and resentment. And in the kingdom of God, people who are way far away from God, they're brought really close. They're actually brought into his family and adopted as his children. So in the, the fullness of the kingdom, at least according to Jesus, the fullness of the kingdom is not best expressed as an opportunity for his followers one day to escape from this messed up, terrible world when they die. Rather, the, the gospel is the announcement that God's kingdom has come in Christ, that, that God's eternity has entered into the here and now and will carry on into the hereafter. So as the followers of Jesus Christ, as his body, we join together with Jesus in the proclamation that up there has come down here and that eternity has actually entered into this world through Jesus Christ into our hearts and into our lives and into our families and into our communities and is radically changing everything. That's what the church is all about. The, the, whole, the whole church bringing the whole gospel to the whole world, the power of God changing everything. That's what we're about. Now, when you remember who you are and you remember the task that's been given to you, how does that not energize you? I mean, 
Of course the early church, when they remembered who they were and what it was that they were all about and, and the message they were, that they were bringing, they, they were very bold. In fact, when you think about the nature of the calling, who has called you into what you've been called and what it is that's coming, it, the whole thing just emboldens you. And so what we see in the early church is just a boldness about everything. Boldness. That's what we've been talking about. And today what I want to focus on is just one real simple truth. As God's people, His bold people, we will not be overwhelmed. That's what I want to focus on. And so what I want to do is ask you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. Now the verses are going to be up there, but you may want to look at this in your own text in front of you. Acts chapter 6, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. But let me kind of re, uh, just kind of recap where we've been a little bit over the last few weeks. Whenever God's bold people get together and they're doing bold things because it's a big, great big bold plan that God has, Satan, of course, is really interested and he brings a counterattack. Actually, there are four counterattacks that we're able to identify pretty clearly in the book of Acts. And we've actually talked about three of them. One of them that we've mentioned is how Satan will bring persecution, just a flat-out frontal assault to keep the people of God from doing what it is that God would have them to do. And in the book of Acts, when this happens, it's almost like throwing grease on a fire and it spreads the kingdom. And the people in the face of persecution kind of double down and say, well, I don't care. I'm not going to bend a knee to anyone other than God, the end. And the the resolution becomes a lot stronger and the people are sent out and the kingdom of God advances. There's another thing, though, that we looked at. This is a couple of weeks ago, and that was the temptation to pretend or inauthenticity. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago when we were thinking about Ananias and Sapphira, about how they opted for image management over authenticity and authentically encouraging one another. And the problem with image management is it's, in, it's incredibly religious. It's a very religious spirit to say, yeah, 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 I need, I need to believe in Jesus. We all do. But just because you believe in Jesus doesn't mean you're, you're as good as me because look at what I've done. And, and we can, we're concerned about our image management. And there's this subtle lie that I can add to the righteousness that Jesus Christ has given me. And then there's this one-upmanship that happens within the body of Christ. And, and then there are the haves and the have-nots and all the rest. And and that is really, really messed up, and we see that happening around the country in churches. And we kind of talked about this is why so many people from generations 50 years old and younger are kind of walking away because they saw this kind of messed up religious spirit and inauthenticity, and they said, I don't know if Christianity is true or not, but why should I even care if it's true? Because my parents don't care, and the people around me don't care, and my church just doesn't seem to care, and nobody's really bought in, and they just don't know that many adults who know what they believe and why they believe what they believe, and that are trying to authentically live their lives in keeping with their beliefs. And so people are walking away because it's become about image management, and God squashes that problem in the early church, and as a result, what we saw is the kingdom of God advanced boldly. There's something else we looked at last week, and that is this temptation of the enemy toward complacency. And you might remember that for the first nine years, all the Christians were Jews. And the believers didn't get outside of their comfort zone. They didn't cross over cultural boundaries because they said, well, okay, there might be people around us who are dying and going to hell, but, hey, at least we haven't eaten bacon. And, uh, and God was thinking, that's not really that great. You know, if your priority is more along the lines of not doing something as opposed to winning the lost, that's pretty messed up. Because the whole of the law and the prophets, this is over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, it's not on your, your screen there. It says the whole of the law and the prophets just comes down to this one command. The whole law is summed up in this, love your neighbor as yourself. You guys aren't loving your neighbors. You're just more concerned about your do's and your don'ts and, and, and just being really comfortable where you are. And God pressed people out of that messed up way of thinking. And as a result, the gospel advanced. 
So there's persecution, and there's this temptation to pretend, and there's complacency. And whenever people have overcome these counterattacks, the gospel is advanced, the gospel is advanced, the gospel is advanced. There's another thing, though, that we come to today that's really interesting, and that is, I think, this counterattack along the lines of moving God's people into being overwhelmed or feeling overwhelmed. And that brings us to Acts chapter 1. Uh, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And we're not going to stand here because I'm just going to read the Scripture, make some comments along the way. So if you stood for the reading, you'd be standing for about 20 minutes, and that's just not going to work out. So let's just go ahead and pick it up in verse, in verse 1. The, the people are facing this overwhelming problem, and they're, they're troubled by it. It would appear to be overwhelming, at least on the surface of things. Now, in those days when the disciples were increasing in numbers, and I just want to pause right here and say something that we all need to understand. If you read through the book of Acts, and it's not just here, you read through any of the book of Acts, you're going to see there are two categories of people. There are disciples, and there are people who are not disciples. It's real plain. There are Christ followers, and there are those who are not Christ followers. There's Christians, and there are not Christians. It's, it's it, the two, two categories. And the reason I bring this up is because somewhere along the way, we've bought into some kind of idea that there are three categories of people. There are Christians who are Christ followers, and then there are Christians who don't really follow Christ, and then there are non-Christians. You don't see those three categories of people in the New Testament. They're just, it's just not there, not in the book of Acts. And because the disciples knew that they were disciples, you have disciples that are making disciples who make disciples, and so, of course, the church is increasing in number. In fact, it's increasing very quickly because this is just months into the history of the church, and already there in Jerusalem, there's about 20,000 believers. It's, it's amazing what's happening. So they're increasing in number, but there's a problem. And here it is. A complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were, were being neglected in the daily distribution. See, what was happening is there, there was a cultural bias in the first century in Jerusalem among the Jews. And here's the cultural bias or distinction or division that was happening. There were the Hebraic Jews who were kind of, you know, the very strict boundaries Jews. We don't speak any, any of that Greek stuff, Jews. We, you know, we're just, we're the Orthodox ones. And then there were the Jews who were the Hellenists who, they spoke Greek and maybe they were more cosmopolitan and they'd been to more places and they were just, I don't know, a little bit more comfortable in the culture in which they found themselves. And so you've got two different groups of Jews. Now you say, well, that's not a big difference. These are Jews and these are Jews. But the distinction was still noticeable. And because of this notice, noticeable distinction, there was a prejudice and a judgment from one group against the other group and from this group against the other group. And it showed up in these widows who were Hellenists being shortchanged at the time of the food distribution. Now, we can't get too upset about this because the reality is we still do that today. People come into the church with their brokenness, with their particular upbringings, with their own particular cultural heritage. And we bring in to the church oftentimes these divisions and these judgments and, and, and these kinds of prejudices that don't actually belong because they have nothing to do with sin or not sin or living effectively in the kingdom of God or not living effectively in the kingdom of God. But sometimes we'll bring in these kinds of cultural divisions and it messes things up within the church. That's why the New Testament reminds us of something really simple. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of what we eat or drink, but of living a life of goodness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But Satan does use cultural kinds of stuff and different decisions in these different arenas to kind of separate people. And that was what was happening there 
with the widows. And the, and the really sad thing about this is the widows had no protection. You didn't have Social Security and all the rest. If the widow was a widow, she was a persona non grata, and, and they didn't have any help or any assistance available to them. And so if nobody helped them, they were dead. That was pretty much it. So the Hellenists are being kind of cheated a little bit. And so the, the Hellenist widows complain and say, we, we're not getting what it is that we think that we deserve. And, and here's what happens. Well, which, by the way, before I move forward on this, let me just mention something really good, because this all sounds negative, but I want you to see something fantastic that's happening here. The church is only months old, and already the church has set up a resource and food distribution center. Uh, do you know why that's the case? Uh, well, it's the case because as the family of God, we don't let family suffer. They knew what Jesus taught. They knew he cared about the poor. They knew that the Heavenly Father cared about the poor. And so it really couldn't, shouldn't come as a surprise that the first thing they do is they say, we've got to take care of, of these poor, the widows, the most powerless people in, in our family. You go over to Deuteronomy. It says this, For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. That's the foreigner that's living in your midst. Loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And look at why we're motivated to give. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And the reminder is, hey, remember who you were? And specifically to the Jews, it's like, remember you were in the land of captivity? Remember you had nothing? Remember you were, you know, you were slaves? And if it weren't for God coming along and rescuing you, you'd still be right where you were. And as believers, we understand this because while we were still poor, spiritually impoverished, while we had a moral debt that was so big we could not claim chapter 11 or or somehow refinance, Jesus Christ came along and he paid the debt we could not pay, and the payment was made not with leftover cash, but with the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so apart from Jesus Christ, you know what you are and what I am? We are poor. We are absolutely thoroughly impoverished and stuck in our poverty. And when you remember where you were and what it is that Jesus did so as to make you rich in every way, it helps you to identify with those who do not have. So we should have no trouble when we remember who we are and where we've been and what God has done for us. We should have no trouble getting outside of ourselves and entering into the life of someone else. So that all makes sense. So there's some really good things going on in the early church. They've set up this food distribution center. They want to take care of everybody. But there's this one little problem. It's prejudice and distinction and division along the lines of things that really should have mattered. So what do they do? Here's the solution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenaeus and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. So here's what they did in a nutshell. They refused to be overwhelmed by the situation that they were facing. The apostles said, it's not right for us to give up the promotion of the gospel pressing forward the kingdom of God because that's our central concern. But just because that's our central concern doesn't mean that it's our only concern because there are 
very practical implications from the gospel. And one of the implications is when you believe the gospel and you're brought home to God, you were far away, but you've been adopted into the family. That means that in, in Christ, we're all members of one of the same family. And family, they just don't let family suffer. They certainly don't let brothers and sisters starve. And so they say, hey, it's not right for us to give up the promotion of the word, the ministry of the word and prayer and all the rest. We're not going to be waiting on tables, but that doesn't mean it's not important. Select seven men to do this. Get some table waiters. Get some table servants. And let's take care of this thing. And you know what's really interesting in all of this? There's two things that are really interesting here. When all the disciples come together and they select these seven men, all of these men are, well, they're all Hellenist names. They're all Greek names. You know what the church does? The church doesn't say, hey, let's have half Hellenistic or, or half Hellenistic Jews and half Hebraic Jews, and let's just kind of all work together. They just said, you know what? If you're full of the Holy Spirit, we don't care if all seven of you represent the angry disenfranchised. If you're from this other group of Hellenists, we trust you to take care of all of the widows, Hebrew and Hellenist alike. That was a pretty bold move. All seven of you just come from that group, and we trust you to disperse all the food to all of the widows. That's pretty bold. But there's something else that's really shockingly amazing here, and it's easy to miss, because on the surface of things, when you come to this text, a lot of people said, that just looks kind of sexist, you know, like get seven men, and, you know, what about the ladies? I want you to notice that this is not anti-women for four reasons, okay? First of all, I want you to notice they call all the disciples together to help with this selection process. That's men and women. Now, I don't know how they did this exactly, how they select the seven, but somewhere along the lines, there's process, there's voting that's going on. You say, where's the first place in history where women had a same vote and say as men? It's right here. This is like 1,800 plus years ahead of its time. The church is only months old, and women are equals with men with regards to the selection process. That's kind of shocking. There's something else I want you to notice here, too. When it talks about all the disciples, it calls all of them men and women brothers. Now, you say, well, that's kind of weird. Why would it do that? Well, it is addressed, it, the, the Greek word is adelphoi, it's brothers. Now, you'll come to some translations like the, what is it, the, the Holman Standard Bible, it's kind of, or the CSB, the Christian Holman Standard, Standard Bible, it's kind of the Southern Baptist translation, if you will, the Lifeway one. And they translate this, this word, brothers, as brothers and sisters because they just want everybody to know that when they say brothers, they're talking about the women and the men. But the word isn't brothers and sisters, it's brothers. Why are the ladies called brothers? Doesn't that kind of creep you out? That's almost like Tom Brady kissing his 12-year-old son for five minutes or whatever. He's just like, ugh, you know, why would you? I don't want to call you brothers. That just is weird. Why do we do that? Well, here's why. Because in, in the early days when the church was formed, Men had all the rights. Their sons were the ones in control. The women were nothing. Women didn't vote. Women were persona non grata. They didn't inherit anything. If you were the sister, you had no rights. If you were the brother, you're the one with the rights. And what the Bible teaches is that when you become a Christian, you become Abraham's seed. You are the heir to all of his promises. You get the rights of the, of the firstborn. You get the rights of sonship. As women. And so already, early on in the church, the women are being addressed, along with the men, as brothers. How's that for advance? 
There's a third thing that we really need to notice, and it's got to be ought to be kind of obvious. The widows, as women, are persona non grata, persona non grata. I mean, they got nothing. They're women, and they got nothing. They were the dregs of society. They were the ones that were generally cast aside. But if you were to see a widow being served by a man, who would be the one that you would typically think is the one that's on top of things? Is it the servant or the one who's being served? The one who's being served is the one who's in a position of honor, not the one who's doing the serving. These widows are being honored. Oh, and by the way, men, unless they were slaves, they didn't wait on tables. Men didn't wait on the women. women didn't, men didn't serve women in that, in that culture. But here, you've got men who are serving the women. I don't think this is anti-women at all. Now, okay, it still said, let's, let's have seven men serve the women. You know what? I read this text and I go to myself, I hope one day that my daughter marries a Christian man. You know why? Because in the Christian worldview, men serve women. And when men think otherwise, I just think, you know, you've got a lot of growing up to do. Around my house, here's how it is. And, and I know we didn't all grow up in the same way or different cultures and all the rest. But around my house, you know what? I, I don't mind doing the dishes. I don't mind picking up. I don't mind doing my part. My wife works. I work. Here's the thing. As a Christian man, I serve my wife like Christ served the church. And as Christian men, you know what we do also? We serve the widows because we don't have this mentality of, oh, well, here's the guys up here and here's the women down here. No, no, no. Actually, in the Christian worldview, we serve the women. And if you have a problem with that, you're, just, you're missing what's actually in this text. The reason I bring all this up is I want you to see that they're just months into their history as the people of God, and already they're living out something that the Apostle Paul would write years and years later in Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, women included, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So there's a responsibility that gets shared and people, you know, they're willing to serve and the men are willing to serve the women and we're not going to leave anybody out of this community and everybody has a say and they just kind of execute on this plan because they recognize we don't want there to be Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, rich and poor. We don't want there to be, you know, male and female. We're wanting everybody to be served. And so they get this plan together and then they execute the plan. And you know what happens as a result of this very practical display of the sovereign care of God? Here it is. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The people refused to be overwhelmed by the problem, and more and more people are mobilized for service, and people aren't afraid of serving one another and stooping low and serving those that the culture around them considered to be beneath them, because as Christians they knew if we're following Jesus and he's the chief servant, that we're going to live our lives in imitation of Christ who came and said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so it's within our DNA to serve, and it's within our DNA to share that service, and it's within our DNA to, to give glory to God in the way that we actually behave toward one another in community without barriers. There might be barriers outside of the body of Christ, but within the body of Christ, all of those distinctions and those barriers should be coming down because that's life in the kingdom. That's the result of the gospel taking root in somebody's life. So they refuse to be overwhelmed by this problem. They absolutely own this problem. But it's an overwhelming problem. And typically, here's the thing, typically 
we do have a tendency to get overwhelmed when we see the enormity of the issues in front of us. And I want to spend the rest of our time just kind of talking about this because I feel like sometimes I get a little overwhelmed and maybe you do too. Um, you know, I love listening to David talk about, you know, what's going on at the caring place and then you got, you know, three cans of corn and then there's all these pallets of corn and, you know, God does miraculously provide, but he does typically provide through the care of his people. And we do have an ongoing relationship with the caring place and from time to time we do these drives to help support the caring place. But sometimes we can feel a little bit overwhelmed, especially if you watch the news all the time. Now, I probably watch it, maybe I watch it once every other day or something. It's embarrassing. I'll come to Wednesday night prayer meeting and people will be talking about stuff. And it's like, I don't know what's going on because I just didn't have time to watch the news or I'm just not inclined. But when I watch the news or read the news all the time, I'm just like, man, you know, there's this problem, this problem, this problem. And, and if, you, if you're online, you can do a link to this, to this, and you can find out all the problems, the details of all the problems, the problems that you would have never known about even 100 years ago. I mean, 100 years ago, you get the newspaper and you might have like a little black and white picture of a you know, a tornado somewhere else that you don't even know where it existed or something. And today, we're just overwhelmed with problems coming at us, global issues. On top of that, we know problems in our own neighborhood or in our own, you know, backyard, so to speak. You got some people at work and you go, this man, he's got this girl who's really, really sick and we've got these neighbors and they're going through divorce and they want us to come over and our marriage isn't really that good, but, you know, it's not as bad as theirs, and they want some help, and we don't really know what to do, but we're going to invest ourselves in them. And, and then there's this other person. they got this financial difficulty, or so-and-so just lost a job, and my kid's going through this, and my, my uh, neighbor's kid is going through that. And you just hear all these things, and sometimes it can kind of make you feel overwhelmed. Then on top of that, we're in church. And, uh, you know, church is where people bring their problems, and, and that's okay, but, you, you know, you're hearing stuff, and you get your prayer requests, and and, you know, at, in, the, in the office, you know, I just know around the community, a lot of people look at the church as this is the place where we come to get our needs met. And then when our needs are met, we don't go to the church anymore because it's just a place where we go to get stuff. And once I've been serviced, I'll go somewhere else. And, and, and here's the thing. Sometimes we can just feel like life is just one tragedy, one frustration, one disappointment, one difficulty after the next. And then you counsel a friend and then they don't take your counsel and then they fall apart and then they come back to you for more counsel and you counsel them some more and then it just doesn't seem like it's doing any good. How many of you ever just feel a little bit overwhelmed by stuff? I do. You know what the tendency is? The tendency for you and the tendency for me is just to kind of disengage. But we know that's not an option that's available to us because we follow Christ and he was a servant. And But we also look at how the government has thrown billions and billions and billions of dollars at these things and at the same time, those issues are still here. The complexity still exists. Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always. And here we are 2,000 years later, and the poor we still have with us. And we just go, man, you know, I can't do everything about everything. And that, if you're a smart person, if you're at all thinking, you go, well, I can't do everything about everything. You can't do everything about everything. So what in the world are we going to do? And there's just this tendency to want to disengage. But you know you can't disengage. What do you do? Well, I want to direct your attention to one passage in Galatians. Then I want to give you one statement, and then I'm going to give you an opportunity. Okay, so, and then we're done. In Galatians chapter 6, there's this wonderful statement from the Apostle Paul. He says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. I love this passage for several reasons. First of all, it's an acknowledgement we get weary. It's called compassion fatigue. 
you can get tired of being engaged in other people's problems. The intercessory prayer actually is exhausting. If you're praying for other people on a consistent basis, it will wear you out. Some of us would get tired of generosity. We get tired of doing all kinds of different things. You get tired. This verse tells us don't. Why does it tell us don't? Because it's not natural for us to keep going on because we do get tired, but there is a payoff that's coming. And look at what Paul says next. Therefore, as we have opportunity, and the Greek word for opportunity is kairos, which is most often just translated time, because time and opportunity and the moment when it comes, they're all kind of interchangeable ideas. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Here's what I want you to see, real plain. You have an opportunity, and like time, opportunities pass. So boldly seize each opportunity. In spite of the fact that there are problems that are complicated by the reality that you can't do everything about it, and they're complicated by the further reality that these issues seem to keep going on forever and ever and probably will until Jesus comes, in spite of that, God gives you and he gives me opportunities. And when the opportunity comes, you better seize it because like time, you don't get it back. And so as to help you to seize the opportunity when it comes without being overwhelmed, let me give you one very simple statement, and it's served me well and a lot of people well. Here's the statement. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Let's say that out loud because I want you to get it. Do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And here's why I love this statement. It flies in the face of something that we were all taught growing up that was wrong. Here's what I mean. Probably when you were a kid like me, you would go to your teacher and you would say something like, may I go to the bathroom, please? Or may I change desks with Johnny? And what did your teacher tell you? Well, if I let you do it, I'll have to let everyone do it. If I do it for you, I'll have to do it for everyone. Or you went to your coach and said, I need a break. I need to get some water. And the coach said, what? If I do it for you, I have to do it for everyone. Or you went to the clerk at the you know, county office and you needed some form and it wasn't in her job description. And she said, well, if I do it for you, I have to do it for everyone. Now, you know what you thought in those moments? You thought what I thought. No, you don't. You don't have to do it for everyone. You can do it just for me. Your teacher said, no, you can't go to the bathroom. If I let you do it, I'd have to let everyone. And, and you think, well, no, you don't have to. I'm the only one who needs to go to the bathroom. And when I go to the bathroom, I, I don't want to take everybody with me. I, you can just let, that's just not my, I know girls have different rules, but, you know, guys, it's like, you know, I'm sorry. You know, hey, like I said, the Bible's not anti-women. I'm just saying, okay, uh. Hey, I just, I just want to go by myself. You don't have to let, I don't want you to let everyone go with me. You don't have to let everyone go. You don't have to. It, it's, it's kind of interesting. Um, a week ago Friday, I called Mark, and uh, he didn't answer. I left a message and just told him, hey, could you come and be in both services from the 830 and the 1050? Because I'd really like to pray for you. And I'd like you to come up here and just give us a chance to pray for you in particular. And he called back, and I wasn't answering either. I had something else going on. He left a message. It, was, it must have been, I don't know, four minutes long, almost as long as one of my prayers. 
And, uh, and he left a message just basically saying, hey, Ernest, thanks, I really appreciate it, but, uh, you know, uh, you know if, you do, if, you, if, if I'm up there, then you have to put other people up there, and, uh, you know, I just don't know. And if you do it for me, you'll have to do it for everyone. And then I called Mark back, and we talked. I said, no, I don't. I don't have to. Whoever said I had to be fair? I went back and looked at my job description, and it's like, there's nothing in there about fairness. You know, praise God for that. I had a pastor that I served with, and he said something that really stuck with me. His name was Randy, and, and, and this is the only thing I remember him ever saying, but it was really good. He said, I don't try to be fair. I just try to do the right thing. I don't try to be fair. I just try to do what it is that God wants me to do. Whoever said you had to be fair? Your dad didn't fair. Your mama wasn't fair. Life's not fair. Why would we think that, you know, God's fair. I think God's fair, but I'm not God. I get one opportunity one day, and then I may not have the same opportunity the next day, and I just want to do what it is that God leads me to do or just do the right thing. And I don't know that I should try to be fair because the reality is the one who oversees it all, the, the God of heaven, you know, my head, he's the head. I don't have to figure things out. I just need to touch whomever God wants me to touch. I don't have to touch everybody. I can't. I'm just a finger. But, you know, I kind of assume that if God wants me to touch somebody, God's actually thinking that he wants you to touch somebody too. And, and maybe rather than me being concerned about my one finger getting everything, I ought to be thinking, well, if I would just do my part in the finger that he's made me to be, then maybe with 300 other fingers a whole lot of lives would get touched and just leave it at that. Maybe, maybe our desire to be fair, our overblown sense of what is right and wrong and just and unjust is the very thing, us trying to play God might be the very thing that's keeping back the restorative justice of God. And maybe instead of us asking, well, if, you know, if I do it for them, I'm going to be able to do it for them. Maybe we should just ask God, what do you want me to do? And trust that God's going to work it all out. What I want for you basically is the same thing that I do for myself. I don't want you to be fair. I just want you to do for one what you'd like to do for everyone. Because otherwise, here's what you're going to do. You say, well, since I can't do it for everyone, I, got, I, I guess I can't do it for anyone. And people get stuck. I, I mentioned last week that I really do think that when it comes to, and I don't just think this isn't a guess. All the statistics bear this out, and you really know this to be true. When it comes to future generations, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, 40-somethings, we're losing ground about like a California mudslide. Say, well, I can't hold back a mudslide. Well, no, you can't. But you know what you can do? You can plant seed in your plot of ground. And then you can water the yard God's given you. And when that takes root, well, it kind of holds things together. And maybe instead of everything falling apart, things could be green again. But we can't do anything if we always go at it going, well, if I can't, do it for everyone, then I'll do it for no one, and then we never gain any ground. So here's my suggestion. Just do for one what you'd like to do for everyone and recognize that when you have an opportunity, maybe the same opportunity is going to be there the next day or the next day or the next day. You just make the most of the opportunity that God gives to you. Who's your one person? What's your one thing? And, and by the way, as, as we're thinking about this, we also need to be thinking more along the lines of not, not wide but deep. Go deep, not wide. Okay. Go deep, not wide. Go long-term, not short-term. And go personal, not just financial. See, the way we like to do things is where we can just do the you know, broad scattershot approach. 
I'm just going to be a part of some kind of program, and uh, then I'm just going to be, you know, be involved in a short-term venture, and then I'll back off for a while, and maybe I'll just give some money to something, and those are good things. But you know what really is wonderful? It's when the cause becomes personal, and all of a sudden it's not just a cause or a theory. You've got a face that you're looking at. When you go deep instead of wide, when you go long-term with someone rather than short-term, and when it's personal, not just financial, I don't know. I just kind of feel like that's a little bit more along the lines of an authentic touch of God. You remember the story where there's the good, she- the good shepherd and one of the 99 sheep goes missing. And he leaves the 99 and goes after the one. It's not that he doesn't care about all the 99. But the shepherd goes for the one. He goes deep rather than wide. He's not just thinking about the short term. Because if he was thinking short term, it'd be, that's a high maintenance sheep. Forget about it. But he goes after the sheep. He invests the time. And it's personal. And he takes that sheep and throws it on his shoulders and brings it back and maybe nurses it back to health. And if it's a high-maintenance sheep like the cattle we used to have, you've got to chase it, bring it back, and chase it, bring it back, and chase it, bring it back. But that's just kind of how ministry is. It's, it's deep, and it's long-term, and it's, it's personal. So what's your opportunity? Who's your one, or what's your one thing? Uh, we've got some inserts in your bulletins. You may want to take those out and We've got something that's kind of a culture team, and they've been thinking about where's God placed us and what are some opportunities that we have to minister in a unique way, and these were fantastic ideas. I want you to take out that, that little insert there. I think there's four different categories, and, you know, are you interested in tutoring? Are you interested in mentoring? Could you help with some kind of special interest or hobby? Look over that. Put your name on it, and if there is anything that rings a bell with you, that you feel like maybe God's calling you to, we want to know about it so that we can form these ministry teams. Four weeks from today, we're going to have in here a ministry fair. We're going to have all of the different ministries of the church around here for you to take a look at and see how can I participate, what's maybe my one particular calling. It doesn't have to be what somebody else has. I mean, the apostles said, hey, we can't do that. It's not that we don't value it, but we've got our particular calling. You don't have to do what everybody else does in order to appropriately value it. But what's your one thing? Who's, who's your one person, too, when it comes to evangelism? Who is it that you're reaching out to? Don't be stuck thinking, well, if I can't do it for everyone, I can't do it for anyone. That's just a lie. I hate to say that Satan used your teacher, but he did. Just do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. And take care of the plot of ground that God has given you. And maybe, just maybe, as we all are doing the same thing under the headship of Christ, we'll take back some ground. And if everyone was touching one, then who knows, maybe if we stopped playing God and just followed God's lead, eventually everybody would get fed. You take time, maybe during the song or at the end of the service, to fill those out. And you can just put them in the boxes. You can hand it to, to me or to any of our staff or deacons. We'll get them. But you just make this a point of prayer and you say, well, I don't know that I've got time to pray about it or think about it. Something might just immediately hit you and some other things like you just need some time. You take the time, but make sure we get some feedback from you as, uh, as together as a church we discern what it is that God would have us to do so as to minister in practical ways to the community around us because that's just what we do. We're, we're servants. Let's bow forward a prayer.
Father, we thank you so much for the love and the grace and the calling that you've placed upon our lives. This calling to take the gospel, the good news to people, the good news that in Christ your eternity has entered into the here and now and carries on into the hereafter. But Lord, it is an, it's an eternal life that, that brings incredible heart change, incredible life change. It changes families, it changes marriages, it changes communities. When up there comes down here through Jesus Christ and by faith, amazing, extraordinary things occur. Lord, help us as your people to do what we can with the opportunities you give each and every one of us every day or week or month or year so that we can proclaim the gospel in all of its fullness. The whole church proclaiming the whole gospel to the whole world. Lord, make us bold. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.